Good morning. You'd think I accepted this just to be able to take my mask off, but my dear brother-in-law over there would say, Ron Toon, he would say the church was finding a way to get me to church on time. But um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Enica Flores. I'm fairly new to the church. Um, thanks to Tracy inviting my daughter, Rachel, and Johnny, and my five grandkids um, to the church. I happened to come along, and, and God kept confirming. And, and I just want to say thank you to the whole church for uh, being so welcoming. The, the pastors, getting back to your emails, you'd be surprised how many churches don't do that. And just um, people in the foyer just saying hello, and, and the, you know, um, life groups being so welcoming and uh, it's just been a very covenant kind of family feeling and I thank you all for that. I also have um, a daughter Lorena, Ky uh, son Kyle and my daughter Shelly is also attending here with, with us. She's sleeping now because she worked in Abbey Emerge last night but um, Shelly and I volunteer in the extreme weather shelter, and um, uh, we're happy to be involved in this church in various ways, but um, I'm here to read the scripture. Um, the word of God to today will be Revelation 5, 1 to 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and find Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And this morning, we are going to be looking at the theme of worship. And right away, I think when we look at a theme like this, we're, we're going to ask ourselves a question. And the question is, what does the theme of heavenly worship, anticipating what worship will be like in glory, how does that affect me, practically speaking, today? And so what I want to appeal to you right on the front end is that Scripture's appeal to every single one of us, whether we believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior and Creator of all things, or if we don't, the appeal of Scripture is that all human beings are made to worship. All human beings are made to worship. So just like caterpillars are made to become butterflies, just like cars are made to be driven, just like eagles are made to fly, just like the stars are made to brightly shine, just like the Canucks are made to lose, we all have our part to play. 
Humans, I'm sorry, but I'm not. Humans are made to worship. We're all made to worship. So here's what that means. When we don't worship God, here's what happens. We wind up worshiping something else. That's, that's the appeal of scripture. We are all made to worship. So let me just kind of make a, a cultural observation for you for a moment. For those of you who are age 30, 35, or older, have you noticed in the last 20 years kind of a rise in cultural and political tension across U.S. and Canada? It's, it's palpable, isn't it? Now, here, here's the appeal I want to make. One thing that we know is that in the U.S. and in Canada right now, the two largest growing religions are the nuns and the duns. Are you familiar with these terms? The nuns are those who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. They're either irreligious or they don't believe in God. They have no association with religion. And the duns is those who used to follow the lordship of Christ but, but have fallen away. And so those are the two fastest growing religions in Canada. So watch this. As Christianity is on a steep decline in our country, so emerges from the ashes a growing rise of worshiping other things. And so that, that's the appeal. That's, that's kind of what we see happening even in our culture in the last 20 years. So yes, we've always been engaged in politics. We've always loved sports. We've always been engaged in social issues. But now, right now in our time, they seem to have so much more stock placed within them. Maybe a better word is so much more hope is placed within them. We are placing our hope in things that ultimately will never satisfy our souls. And so here's what happens. When we place our stock, our hope in other things, and then they disappoint, suddenly we're, we're filled with angst and anxiety when things don't work out the way that we had anticipated. And we even surprise ourselves. Like, why am I reacting this way? You've placed your hope in something that will not satisfy your soul. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in our culture right now. I, I love the way Eugene Peterson says this. I've encouraged all of you to read the book um, Reverse Thunder, and within that third chapter on worship, he says this. Failure to worship God consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, and every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. Do you feel that? We're either alarmed by specters or soothed by placebos. So here's the point that he's making. The first point I put in your note sheet. The human reality is this. People who do not worship are simply swept into other forms of worship. Because <laughs> we are worshiping beings. No matter what we do, we're going to look for something to worship. It could be cultural issues. It could be soapboxes. It could be politics or sports or celebrities. Whatever else it may be. It could even be apathy. Like binge watching of Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus. Or simply lethargy of the greatest kind. 
We move from fright and panic, oh no, everything is going terribly wrong, to what's the point? And then we try to fill it with placebos. We try to soothe our pain, to comfort our woes with placebos. So these two chapters are really important for both Christians and non-Christians. They're important for Christians because what it's going to do for us is it's going to redirect our affection away from these placebos, away from the anxiety-driven culture that we live in, away from other hopes and dreams that we have placed our ultimate hope in, and back toward the throne room of God. And for those of us who are not Christians, and maybe even for some of us who are, it's going to help us come face to face with that lingering question that every single human being has ever asked. And what is that question? There must be more to life than this. There must be more than this. So let's, let's look at that a little bit for a second. Have you noticed, uh, for those of you who love science fiction, that there's so many movies and shows that are devoted to this. When I was growing up, one of the most famous trilogies of our time was the movie The Matrix. What, what's all that about? All there is really isn't all there is. You are living in a dim shadow, and there is something that is lurking underneath, and that is ultimate reality. Or what about a, a more modern Stranger Things? Right? What, what's all that about? Here's life as you know it, but there's an upside-down world, and there's ultimate reality too. Or even for those of you who are a little bit older, Transformers, what, what was the, the slogan, the, the theme song? More than what meets the eye? Right? So we see all of these cultural references that are telling us there is more than what you can see. And here's the funny thing. They're right. They're right. Everything that we know, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, we have this lingering question in our heart that says, isn't there more than this? There's got to be more than this. Then we just like wake up every single morning, we live out our days, we do our best, and then we die. That's it? No, there has to be. There has to be more. There has to be another dimension within an unseen realm. And here's the question I want to propose to you. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if there is another dimension in the unseen realm? What if it's true that there is greater meaning and substance and purpose than what we're currently experiencing? And I, I just want to appeal to you, uh, this is something that pastor and author Timothy Keller said when he was talking to a group of unchurched people. And so he very lovingly proposed it to them, and, and I want to I propose it to you. He says, if you don't believe there's a heaven, and if you don't believe there's an ultimate reality, do you have the courage to live as if there is no right and wrong, and there are no realities beyond which our eyes can show us? Many of you are philosophically smuggling into your life all kinds of values that you have no right to. Because unless there is an ultimate reality beyond this world, there's no way to talk about right or wrong. And so we actually talk about this a whole lot here. 
we say there is an ultimate reality. And because we believe as Christian, as Christians, there is an ultimate reality, which is revealed in the word of God, then we should live in such a way that we try to understand it and we apply it to our lives so that we see the vision that God has laid out before us in his word. That's why we do what we do. And yet, here's, here's the interesting thing. There's, there's many of us today, and I'm, for those of you who are even Christians, maybe you have friends or family members or co-workers who say two things at exactly the same time. There is no ultimate meaning. Love doesn't matter. There is no objective truth. And yet, at exactly the same time, no one lives that way. No one. I shared this poem with you. We, we got... Uh, Valentine's Day coming up. So teenagers, this is free of charge. I got, I got a poem for you that you can use in a couple of weeks. Roses are red. Violets are blue. The earth doesn't matter. And neither do you. Will you go out with me? Sign your name. No one lives that way, right? No one lives that way. And so we, we know in a sense that every single one of us says there is ultimate meaning. Love does matter, and yet we have no foundation to say that. And so here's my great appeal to you. I know I'm preaching to the choir for those of you who are followers of Jesus, but if you're not, then what's your ultimate foundation? What is the ultimate foundation upon which you live your life? And see, what, what I have found to be true is that Scripture has the key. It unlocks the door to ultimate reality, and that's what we're going to see today in these two chapters. This issue of worship, it's not just a picture of in heaven one day we're going to worship the Lord, although that's true. It's here's the truth for you today, right now, in this place, as you live out your life, there's ultimate truth here. And so here's, here's the quick review that I want you to see. Last week, we finished up the letter portion of the book of Revelation. We got to read the mail of seven churches, many of which were doing quite poorly. And now I want you to see that we're moving away from the letter portion of the book of Revelation. And now we are moving into the apocalyptic literature. This is the time when things are about to get weird. There's going to be anecdotes and stories, and illustrations, and numbers, and we're going to say, what is that? What's going on here? That's strange. And if you did your homework, and you read chapters 4 and 5, you already know that to be true. And maybe you even have some questions this morning that you're hoping maybe I'll answer. So I want to give two things as a review that I shared with you two weeks ago. Number one, I shared with you that Revelation is a prophecy and what we mean by that is it is a window into a divine reality. That's what we mean by prophecy. Not crystal balls, not predictions of the future, but every single time John says, I heard or I saw, which occurs more than 50 times in this book. A window is about to be opened, and as we learned in the Matrix, everything that we know isn't really everything that we know. All there is really isn't all there is, because he's about to show us ultimate reality. And the life that we live is the dim reflection. Number two, Revelation is an apocalypse, which means it is an unveiling of the truth. An unveiling of the truth. So here's what's going to happen as we move forward from chapter four all the way to the end of this book. People will be depicted as animals, 
Historical events will be presented as natural catastrophes and earthquakes and floods. Numbers will have added meaning, and the stories that we hear will not be in chronological order. Now, that's going to be really important, because in our Western brains, we want things to go, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And yet, Revelation doesn't follow those rules. Here's a perfect example. We're going to start with the end. Revelation 4 and 5, it is ultimate glory. One day, when we all stand before the throne room of God, and we live out the rest of our days worshiping the king. And then in a couple weeks, we're going to go back 2,000 plus years to the birth narrative of Jesus. Then we're going to move forward, then back, then forward again. So we're going to be all over the place chronologically. And also, there's going to be stories and images we might not fully understand. But here's the good news. This book does not have to be confusing. This book does not have to be confusing. And so I want to give you two principles to keep in mind to help anchor us in the midst of reading apocalyptic literature, which oftentimes can be really confusing. Because my fear or my concern for us is we will do one of two things. Number one, we'll read through the book of Revelation, and then we will make assumptions about it that aren't actually there. And we won't have the right worldview and perspective to read this book. Or number two, we'll read through it and we'll go, I have no clue what's going on, and we'll give up. And so I don't want either of those things to happen. I want you to have the right worldview and perspective as you read this book. So two principles to keep in mind. Number one, this comes from Alistair Begg. He says this, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. Now that's good news, right? Because what that means is, there might be certain numbers, there might be images, there might be, might be strange anecdotes and stories that we don't fully understand, and we can try to unpack that and understand the historical significance and the meaning, oftentimes from the Old Testament, like books like Ezekiel and Daniel, but the main thing will always shine through. And I hope to kind of give you an example of that this morning. And then number two... The primary concern of Revelation is not the how or the when, but the who and the why. Not the how or the when, but the who and the why. Now, I think that just dropped a bomb and deconstructed the way that we often read this book. Because we look at it and we go, oh my goodness, there's a sign of the end times. Right? The catastrophes, the floods, the heat dome, COVID-19, clearly God's coming any day now. And yet, let me just propose to you something that Jesus said that I think can kind of calm our concerns and our fears for a second. Here's what Jesus says. But about the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here's my proposal. If King Jesus, the second person of the Trinity... And the creator of the universe does not know the day or the hour, then humbly, neither do you. And neither do I. So we, we have to see that the concern of this book is not the how or the when. It is the who and the why. That is the focus. And I think if we cling to these two principles, then we will be able to rightly read through this book and understand what it means for our lives today. So this first window that is being opened up is the window of the throne room of God. So if you have your Bible, look with me. Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like the emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. So let's just look at this throne. This is not just any throne, is it? We see here that it is a throne where all attention and all affection and all focus and all worship of the entire universe is moving toward it. And we see that the imagery here is packed with meaning and significance as well. So the first thing we see is 24 thrones. And here's a good example of plain thing, main thing. You might look at that and say, what does that mean? I, I don't understand what that means. And we can still see the ultimate significance, which is coming in Revelation chapter 5. But to any Jewish listener, they know what the 24 mini thrones are. 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and the other 12 represent the 12 disciples turned apostles. So what's the thing that we want to understand about this. It's this. We serve a covenant-keeping God. Did you notice the rainbow just before? It depicts the 24 elders on the throne. What's all that about? The covenant promises. The fulfilled promises of God. All the way from the book of Genesis, all the way till Revelation, God has been making promises to his people that he will not leave them. He will not sit idly by, but he will enter into the human story of history, that he will redeem his people, and that nothing will take them out of his hands. And here we look at the throne, and what do we see? The fulfilled promises of God. And so what can we see today? That the promises of God are as good as done. That's, that's the story. The promises of God are as good as done. And so he rescues them. He pursues them. He grabs hold of them. And he never lets go. But that's not the only thing that we see. Let's keep reading. Picking up at verse 6. It says this. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now what is that? I would love to see artistic pictures of that. Maybe we should get that for kids' church, get all the kids, get them together. Give us a vision, a picture of what's happening here. So what, what do we need to understand about this? I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, the four creatures are all the aspects of creation. The noblest being the lion, the strongest being the ox, the wisest being the human, and the swiftest being the eagle. And here's the point. 
all of them are centered on God. So here's what I think a really cool thing to think about. We're not the only ones worshiping God around his throne. We're not the only ones. All of creation is giving affection to King Jesus. And we saw that already. Sheena read that portion of scripture that all of creation gathers together and they bow down and they bring forth praise toward their creator. And then suddenly we, we think about it being all over scripture. You think about, for instance, Isaiah chapter 55. He says that the trees of the field will clap their hands and that every hill and mountain will bow down and worship. Or you think about uh, Psalm chapter 19. It says that the heavens will declare the glory of God. Or you think about Luke chapter 19. And it says that if we don't give glory that the king is due, then the rocks will cry out. Or what about Revelation chapter 8? When we see the Apostle Paul giving us this image that all of creation groans like a woman in childbirth for creation to be made and so we see, are humans around this throne? Yeah, they are. But so is all the rest of creation. Everything is bringing forth praise to the Lord and the creator of all things. Trees and valleys, mountains and hills, oxen and donkeys, stars and galaxies, eagles and oceans, lions and lambs, they're all giving forth praise to the one who is due. So here's what we see from this. There's a universal need for worship. I've already appealed to you that all human beings worship. And if you don't worship God, you're just going to worship something else. But we also even see that all of creation, not just humans, all of creation praises God. What else do we see? We see these heavenly hosts here. Just, just after the section I just read. They're beautiful and majestic. And they bow down and worship now, this is a pretty vivid scene because it reveals to us that if ever we saw these heavenly hosts in all of their glory and in all of their splendor, we would be tempted to bow down and to worship them or to fall down into the fetal position out of dread and fear. And what do we see? They're the ones who are bowing down before the throne of God. They're the ones who are in awe and in dread toward the creator and sustainer of all things. And why is this important to take note of? I think it's important because it helps deconstruct the vision that we often have of King Jesus. What's the vision we usually have in our mind of Jesus? Maybe you have the picture of beautiful baby Jesus in the manger, right? The one that we created in our image with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the pale skin. Or, or maybe it's Buddy Jesus, you know, the one with his hands up, the, the cultural reference of the Jesus that we typically have. And yet, what do we see here? Look at your Bibles. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We see a vision of a lion who conquered and a lamb who was slain. Bloodied and full of power and full of authority. That's the image that scripture gives to us. And so I think we have to lose the reference of baby helpless Jesus or cultural buddy Jesus. And in its place, we have to see this vision of the lion lamb 
both being the same thing. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. So John, he, he peers through this window. He enters into the, out of his upside-down world and into this right-side-up world where all affection and glory and honor and praise is centered around the throne room of God. This is ultimate reality. This is what ultimately will be for the rest of our days. But then there's a moment where everything changes. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and to look inside. No one was able to open the scroll. There is so much packed into this one little verse. Let me just walk through it with you. Any Jewish Christian, if they hear the word scroll, instantly they're thinking the word scripture. Two quick references I want you to, to be thinking about. What happened when Jesus entered into the synagogue, and he, there he is with the Jews, but he's also with the Sanhedrin. He's with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. They're all there. What does he do? He opens the scroll. He reads from Isaiah. He reads about the lamb who was slain. And there he says, and these words have been fulfilled today in your hearing. Or what about the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts? And he is trying to open the scroll and to understand Isaiah chapter 55, but he doesn't understand it. Philip shows up. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, no. How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And then he explains the gospel. He opens up the scroll. He reveals to him the truth of the gospel. His heart is changed. He gets baptized and he leaves rejoicing. So every single time Jews thought about the word scroll, they're thinking scripture being revealed to God's people. But within that, we know that the scroll not only represents scripture, but it represents the law. And in that we see that what the Apostle Paul said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can open the seal. Why? Because none of us have lived up to the standard of God. None of us have fully obeyed God. And so no matter how hard we try to live obedient lives and to follow his law and to do what he says, none of us can open the scroll. And within that, we also see that the scroll represents the guest list for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is ultimately what causes John to grieve. As beautiful as it is to see the scroll... If it can't be opened, it clearly means that if there's names inside the covenant promises of God that we already talked about with the, the 24 elders seated around this throne, the, uh, the rainbow indicating God's covenant faithfulness, we wouldn't celebrate just yet. Because we have to see, is my name on that scroll? Is your name on that scroll? But if the scroll can't be opened then all of us are doomed. So here's the plain main thing. 
It is this. If no one can come in because no one can open the scroll, then all of us are doomed to a life outside the presence of God. That's the point. All of us are doomed to a life outside the presence of God. What's hell? We often have these these images of of fire and brimstone, right? But what is hell? It's simply this. It is the absence of the presence of God. You don't have the security of God, the power of God, the radiance of God, the beauty of God, the peace of God, the joy of God. It's all gone. Because outside of the presence of God, all there is is darkness and death. And so at the end of our days, if, if we don't accept the gracious promises of God, God will just give you what you want. He will say, okay, you will not come into my presence. And that's exactly what it is. That's why this depiction of fire and brimstone and hell is an apt description. Because outside of the presence of God, that's exactly what it is. And so that's why John weeps. Remember that Peterson quote that I shared with you at the beginning? A life without worship just moves us in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. That's what happens when the scroll can't be opened. I think this is the reason why we often don't have peace Enjoy today. I think that's the reason why we're filled with panic today. Because if Jesus isn't our hope, and we're looking for hope in other things, then ultimately, these things will disappoint us. And so, here's, here's kind of what, what I want you to see. This is what happens. We have this tendency to set up our own little mini-thrones over and against God's throne, and that is ultimately an act of defiance against who God is. So you say, when do we do that? You do that anytime you look at this book and you say, I'm smarter than it. Anytime you look at this and you say, you know what, I, I don't have to follow that, I don't have to obey that, I have my own plan, I have my own desires, I'm going to do my own thing. And on account of that, that we are far from God. That's what happens. Every single time you decide you're smarter than this book, you create your own little mini throne over and against and in defiance toward God's throne. And maybe, maybe you've been doing this for a long time and you're starting to grow weary. If you're a type A person, maybe you even built out a list. You decided, you know what, one day I'm going to go to university. I'm uh, going to find a spouse. I'm going to have a couple of kids. I'm going to get a really good job. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to put away a lot of money toward retirement. I'm going to have peace and security on all sides. I'm going to get everything that I want. And in a room of this size, I bet one of two things has happened. Either you've gotten all of those things and more, and still you're wondering if there's more, or life hasn't turned out the way that you expected, and you're filled with bitterness and resentment for how your life has turned out. But either way, whether you've gotten everything you wanted or not, let me ask you, how's it working out? How's it going? You got everything you ever wanted. Are you, do you have peace? Do you have contentment? You got everything that you want? But here's, here's the point. 
you could have everything the world could ever give you, and still it will not satisfy your soul. So that's what happens. You realize that you don't have the capacity, you don't have the strength, you don't have the wisdom, the presence, the power, so you keep moving from panic to lethargy, from freaking out to what's the point? What's the point? So we start by building our own little kingdoms. And then when life doesn't turn out the way that we wanted, we try to numb the pain with placebos. Let me give you a couple examples of this. What, what's a description of a placebo? Pornography? What is that? When we become so obsessed with something that is sexually attractive to us. And even in our own hearts, our hope is that no one would ever realize just how overbearing it is in our own lives and how we can't defeat it. What is that? It's a placebo to numb the pain. Or what about that kind of fun social banter that we see on social media about opening up a bottle of wine at nine in the morning? We're kind of joking, but we're not. What are we doing? It's a placebo to get through the day, to numb the pain. What about emotional affairs? What about real affairs? What about an addiction to your work? What about an infatuation with culture wars? What about putting all of our stock and our hope in politics? What are all of those things? They're placebos. We're trying to fill a longing in our heart, and we just can't do it. We say, like, if, if only, I, I thought if I had all this money, everything would work out the way that I wanted. I thought if I married this person, life would work out the way that I wanted it to. I thought if I had enough success, life would be fine. But it's not. I can't open the scroll. Why can't I do it? Why isn't life working out the way that I wanted. And so John, he looks at this picture of the scroll that can't be opened, and he weeps. He does what any one of us would do if we had no hope. He weeps. And then we see this in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Gateway, the reason that we can be people of stability is because Jesus can open the scroll. He can do that for you. He can, he can do it for me. He has done what all the money in the world could never do, what all the sex in the world could never do, what all the success in the world could never do. And so when John turns and looks for a line, he sees the lamb who was slain. The, the neck has been slit and blood is running down. And yet he is the one who can open the scroll. And suddenly he sees this vision like John the Baptist saw. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Suddenly he has that vision of what happened in Egypt with the people of Israel. When every wicked person was to be put to death. But the promise of God is if you slit the neck of a lamb and you put its blood on the doorposts of your home, the angel of death would pass by. And so John, he finally sees the significance of all the promises made in the Old Testament fulfilled right here. And he says, behold, the lamb of God, the one who can open the scroll, the one who can save me from sin. So here's the plain main thing. John looks and he suddenly realizes 
that the lamb who was slain is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. So I want to give you two things to take home. Two things to cling to in the midst of this reality. What does the throne room of God do for you? Number one, it empowers joy and peace. It empowers joy and peace. See, one thing, one of the really cool things to discover, which we're going to talk about a little bit more next week, is that one of the things that is written on this scroll is my name. My name is on that scroll. So yes, when when the scroll is opened, first it's going to walk through the pages of human history and Christ's redemptive purposes throughout history, and then you're going to go to the next page, and it's going to be a list of names. And you're going to look at it, and you're going to say, is is that my name? (laughs) It is my name. And for anyone who follows Jesus, your name is going to be placed on that too. And so if we know that this scroll is real, then how can you take away my joy? How can you take away my peace? What are you going to do, kill me? To die is gain. What are you going to do, throw me on an island in Patmos to live as Christ? What are you going to do, leave me alone? Well, then I'm going to be all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might win some for the sake of the gospel. What are you going to do? That's what gives me joy. It's, we've talked about this before in the context of peace. Peace is not the removal of the waves. It's the stability of the rock, and this rock will never move. That's what gives me joy and peace. But number two, it empowers hope for today. Now, I don't want to knock on Julie's favorite song, but there is a certain section in this song that I I just want to tweak for a second. Strength for today and bright hope for, what's the word? Can you help me? Tomorrow. I want to retract that for a moment, if I'm allowed. Strength for today, bright hope for today. That's what we can have. And so what we see in, in this story is that the hope that we have is not some distant, far-off, unfulfilled hope and longing of our hearts, but it's something that we have today. That's what we all can have in this moment. We think about Mike and Rebecca's mom, Emily. She's experiencing that hope today. It's it's not some distant, far-off future hope. What about Jonathan's brother? It's not some distant, far-off future hope. It's something that they see with their own eyes, right here, right now. And it's something that we can live into right now. And so you you might look at this, I think to myself, of people who don't yet know Jesus. I think it's the reason why Christians should be weird. Because any unchurched or unbelieving person, they should be able to look at a Christian and say, why are they acting so strange? Don't they know that the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Don't they know that we're, we're filled with woe and filled with troubles? Why is it that they seem to know something I don't know, as though there's hope right around the corner? Why are they so cool as a cucumber when everything is going wrong? I wish I knew what they had. I wish I had the same knowledge that they had. And like a tractor beam, they get sucked in. 
because every single person on the planet is still asking that question, there must be more to life than this. And so I want to end with a quote from Eugene Peterson, and then I want to pray for you. He says this, Worship is an act of attention of the living God who rules, who speaks, reveals and creates, and redeems, orders, and blesses. The end result of the act of worship is that our lives are turned around. That's repentance. The self is no longer the hub of reality as sin seduces us into supposing. So here's the point. All of reality is centered around this throne. So if if you want to have a good marriage, get your eyes off your spouse and onto the throne. If, if you want to be a good parent, get your eyes off your kids and onto the throne. If you want to be a good employer or a good employee or a good business person, get your eyes off of those things and onto the throne. If you want to engage in politics or in social life in a way that is edifying toward the kingdom of God, get your eyes on the throne. No matter what you want to do, if you want to build up God's kingdom, get your eyes on the throne of God. That's the message for those of us who are Christians. We have to repent of the ways that we have put our hope and our stock in things of this world and put our eyes back on the throne. But for maybe for some of you, you aren't a follower of Jesus and you say, Justin, this sounds too good to be true. Here's the message. Here's all you have to do if you want your name to be listed on the book of life. Believe it. And repent. Throw off the old mini throne that you've been using and look to the throne room of God that he graciously gives to you that he longs to draw you in. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son and our rescuer Jesus, the lamb who was slain once for all. We ask, Lord, that we would have this vision of the lion who conquers and the lamb who was slain and that we look toward the throne room to help it shape us and to mold us and to fashion us into your likeness that we wouldn't be alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the throne room of God. Lord, we repent of the ways that we haven't done this. Lord, draw our attention back to you. Draw our affection back to you. We ask that you would make it so by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.